0: Alright, in 1991, um, Disney created a film called Beauty and the Beast, which was based off a French fairy tale that was written back in 1756. I don't know if you knew that, if you watched the movie, we happened to watch it as a family this last week, highly recommend. Um, In Beauty and the Beast, there's some French themes woven throughout because it was originally a a French fairy tale. And so you meet these two characters, you meet Belle and you meet the Beast. So the Beast was a prince who magically was transformed into a monster. And all the people that worked alongside with him turned into household objects, and they were punished, and he was punished because of his arrogance and pride. And then Belle was a young woman who was imprisoned. Uh, She wanted to see her father set free, and in return, she was now enslaved. And so to break the curse that the beast was under, where this prince became this monster, this The beast must learn to love Belle and to receive her love in return before the last petal uh, from an enchanted rose fell. And so we have this magical enchantment. If you watch the movie, you have the old school one that's just cartoon and the new one where it's real people and so the beast is a little more real which can be scary for those that might have Bad, scary dreams sometimes at night. But nonetheless, this is magical enchantment where it meets our heart. And in reality, it's movies like these that draw us into double meaning. We all feel our beastliness. That we all feel at times that we're under a curse. That we all long to be loved and allow that love to break us free from our curse. And in that moment when the beast is dead, been killed by the pursuer of bell, and when he's turned into this handsome prince, as followers of Jesus, we can see that, and we can say, that's us one day. We are going to be uh, receive Christ in such a way that we are made like him, that we're transformed into his glory, and we're made new. There's something about that story that is profound. We're in a teaching series in the Gospel of John, being invited to believe again. And in this section that we're in, in, in John chapter 6 through 11, we're in this space where we hear Jesus make these claims, I am. and In the coming weeks, we're going to hear more and more detail about what that means. And, and this morning, we're going to be uh, talking about two seemingly very random things, coming at it from two very different angles. The first part of our time this morning, I want to talk about textual criticism, very heady You know, something that you'd study uh, in seminary, potentially. Uh, And then on the other side, uh, I want to talk about a profound story about a woman caught in sin. And on one angle, again, we're going to get heady, but it's very important. And on the other side, we're going to be reminded from our heart's perspective about how we are set free from our own beastliness. And so stay with me as we navigate through this. My first point is this. Textual criticism applies to John 8. So if you turn to John 8... um, Open your Bible, turn to John 8, open your app. I would assume the same thing would be the case. Uh, And the ESV at the very top of John 8, the end of John 7, it says these few words. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. You could have very easily just passed by that footnote, that little heading, but that's important. It's important for us to talk about why is that there, what is happening here why is it in the scripture if this is true? And so that's something I want to begin with. I'm unashamed to mention that this book is incredibly reliable. Friends, this book is incredibly reliable for our life and how we see this world and how we see it moving forward. It gives clarity to the good nature of how we got here, that a good creator with with good design created this world with good intent and beauty, and purpose. This this, uh, book tells us that the the painful nature of how sin entered, and why there is sickness, and sorrow, and sin, and death, death spiritually, death physically, death emotionally. It gives clarity to God's plan to redeem the world. That God has a specific provision that he has set forth through his son Jesus, and it's through his son Jesus that redemption occurs. And, and in this good book, it also gives us glimpses of the day to come when he makes all things new. So this book is incredibly reliable. So what do we do with statements like are at the beginning of John chapter 8? Does this increase the reliability of the scripture? Does it decrease the reliability of the scripture, it's important for us to talk about this. And so this is called textual criticism. Again, we're here for a few minutes. You can handle this. I know you can. So a a few minutes of textual criticism. Textual criticism is the technique restoring text as nearly as possible to the original form. It's uh, recognizing that these things that we get from the scripture aren't like fully given to us in a complete package of a a full book. But there's also oftentimes fragments that we get through the centuries and millennia that have passed since the original writing. So in biblical studies, this matters. It has implications on the reliability of the scripture and the trustworthiness of the scripture. So most New Testament scholars do not think the section that we're going to get into in just a few minutes was a part of the Gospel of John when it was first written. Most scholars would say it wasn't. But it was added later. So a few to make mention of Don Carson, who teaches at Trinity uh, is in our view one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. He's incredible, and especially when it comes to the Gospel of John. He writes, "...despite the best efforts to prove that the narrative was originally part of John's Gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote." Bruce Metzger says one of the, he's one of the world's great authorities on the text of the New Testament until his death in 2002. He said, the evidence for the non-Johannine, which is this, origin of the pericope, which is the section of text here, of the adulterers is overwhelming. And then third, Leon Morris, another, uh, he's another scholar, wrote about the Gospel of John. He said, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is authentic part of. Of the Gospel. So, across the board, all kinds of scholars are affirming that this was not in the original text. So, this book is, is thousands of year, years old, right? Which means we don't have full copies of the Gospel of John. We have, again, fragments that date back to a long period of time ago. And so, what we find is that this story, again, is, in John 8, is missing in, in the original text. So, questions about where the text should go. Uh, are real for us if we are to preach from it, if we're going to say it has authority. But what we do know is that the New Testament is extremely trustworthy, and it's worth noting. The New Testament that we know was originally written in Greek, the original language. The first printed Greek New Testament that came off the printing press by a guy named Erasmus, it came off the printing press in 1516. The world was turned upside down when that happened. That means for 1,500 years, for 1,500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down from handwritten uh, scribes. Generation after generation, handwritten scribes would would rewrite the texts that were written and rewrite them and rewrite them because there was no printing press at the time. This is how we access the actual words of the New Testament writers. So the books of the New Testament were preserved for us by those that wrote the original text over and over and over again. Now here's what's amazing. The abundance of the manuscripts of the New Testament, or parts of the New Testament, as compared to the number of manuscripts for all other ancient uh, works, is completely shocking. Let's do a little case study of this. There are 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars between 58 and 50 BC. Ten of those. There are 20 manuscripts of uh, Livy's Roman history. There are two manuscripts exist for Tacitus's uh, histories and the annals. Two manuscripts. There are only eight, eight manuscripts of the history of uh, of uh, Thucydides, who lived in 416 and 400 BC. Compare that to um, 322 unsoul text, or 2,907 uh, minuscule text, or 2445 lectionary portions, or 127. Uh, Papri for a total of five thousand eight hundred and one manuscripts that we find in the New Testament. So if you think about it, like we have like just a little bit of Julius Caesar, and it it feels like sufficient. You have a little bit from other historians, and yet the New Testament is just overwhelming, and the amount of uh, information we have to bring clarity to the credibility of the New Testament that we read. Today, it's significant for us. So, for example, if you had only two ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John, one had the lady caught in adultery and the other one didn't, you wouldn't know what to do, which one's true and which one's not. And we don't have that. We have a hundred Uh, fragments put together that bring clarity to whether something was in the text or something was not, which F.F. Bruce uh, says this a generation ago. He says, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors, so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording and truth remarkably small. So the New Testament can be trusted, which goes back to why we're talking about this. We enter this text, where at the beginning it says the earliest manuscripts do not include. So the question is, though the story is wonderful, is it worth preaching on? Is it something that provides authority for us? And I would say this, both Don Carson and Bruce Metzger think the story actually happened. In other words, they think this is a real event and the life of Jesus, that wasn't originally written by John, but written with apostolic authority, and it's something we can trust. Bruce Bruce Metzger says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, and then Don Carson says, there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. So I would like to say, who doesn't love this story that we're about to get into, the question is, did John place it here in this space versus another space? We don't know. It's, it's doubtful. It's, it is doubtful that he didn't, he didn't because the scholars say it. Uh, was it circulated and later added likely? Does it affirm to us the magnificence of Jesus and his gospel without question? And For that reason, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about this beautiful, life-changing story, which leads to the second point I have, which is this. Jesus' words can transform our broken lives. I take you back to the moment where the beast was laying on his back, bell by his side, gunshots in his back, and bell tells him as he's dying, I love you. And in that moment, in the enchantment of that moment, right as the rose petal falls, we see the beast turned in, to a prince, And it's a story like this, the story of the beauty and the beast, that points to a story that we're going to read this morning, that reminds us of our own story that we're a part of. Let's read it in John chapter 7. Starting in verse 53, it says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Just imagine, as we read this, imagine the dynamics that are about to happen. The scribes and the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him alone, with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into it. Father, I ask that as we consider this text, the compassion and the mercy, and make up who you are, but I pray that it would be a resounding truth in our hearts, softening the hard places, and causing us to run to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. The story's pretty amazing. So many reasons it is amazing um, for us to consider. It's an amazing story because if we're honest, we all feel like both the characters in the story. On one side, we can all feel like this woman. And on the other side, we can all feel like the men holding rocks in our hands. We've all been like the beast. And we've all longed for a hero to break us free from our beastliness. So the story goes like this. Jesus found himself in a temple. He was teaching. He did what he did. And he did what he did. And he did it every day. And he came to this temple and he's sharing in this temple. And there's lots of people in front of him sharing in this temple. The scribes and the Pharisees, they approach Jesus. You can imagine the havoc and the uh, chaos that's happening as they drag this woman in her shame to the public sector in front of all of the people. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this crowd... This ruckus occurs, this woman shows up, and with loud voices, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law says that in the act of adultery, anyone who is caught is to be stoned. What say you, Jesus? You can imagine the tension of this moment, Jesus was well aware of what took place in the Torah in Deuteronomy 22 that says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The Pharisees knew the Torah. They had to know the Torah. They memorized the Torah to become who they were. They were well aware of that. So there's something fishy going on in that they only brought the woman. They didn't care about the man. This was not about Justice. This was not about uh, obeying the law. This was not about being obedient to God's word. That was not the point. They were using her as a means to test Jesus because, again, over and over again, we're finding in the Gospel of John, they're trying to find reason to kill Jesus. So they're trying to use this as a means. They're the ones that have the pie on their face, but they show up, and they're trying to accuse this woman and trying to use her as a means to test Jesus. This is what's happening in this moment. And then the following moment proceeds. Jesus doesn't respond. Friends, you don't always have to be understood. Jesus surely didn't need to be understood. He laid quiet and he simply knelt down and he wrote something into the dirt. We have no idea what he wrote, but we know it surely made a sound. As he stood, likely we can tell in the text that he's next to this woman. And so you can imagine the sound of the dirt as his finger uh, moved through the dirt and they pressed him and they pressed him and they pressed him. And eventually he says, let him who is without sin among you be uh, be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent back down. That was it. Head to the ground drawing something writing something and all of a sudden you can imagine these rocks and hands I, I, I picture it like all of a sudden you hear this thud 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 as the rocks begin to fall from the hands of the accusers one by one the oldest to the youngest they left and when they're all gone Jesus ends the story saying to the woman he asks her he says are they gone where are they has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says these few profound words. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. Sin no more. He didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Continue in your relationship, in your adulterous relationship. He didn't say that. He didn't say, get your life in order, and then I won't condemn you. He didn't say that either. And sometimes we're tempted to believe that that's what Jesus would say to us. And our own mess, that we need to get our life in order, and then once we get our life in order, then we're free from our condemnation. For others of us, we hear the grace of God, and we think that it should empower us to live a life of sin, which is ridiculous. Neither of which what Jesus said. and the compassion of Jesus. Friends, where would we be without the compassion of Jesus? He says, I don't Condemn you, and allow that to lead you to be freed from your chains. That's what Jesus says, and then the scene ends. This woman, laying like the beast, and the warm love of Christ breaks her free and bring hope, brings hope and transformation. See, we are all like this adulterous woman, skewed desires leading us to death. We don't all act on it, but we feel it. We feel it in different ways, feeling our own curse, the proclivity to have what we can't have, yearning for a physical connection or emotional connection from another who is not ours, willing to ruin anything that's in its way. Friends, the power of sin and the deceit of Satan is not something to be messed with, It can ruin and become incredibly painful and cause a mess. It is a liar always. We all can find ourselves like the adulterous woman, and we're all like the men who have rocks in our hands. We have this, again, nasty proclivity to define ourselves and others based on our standard and based on our tribe willing to gather around the enslaved and cast judgment upon them, overlooking the log in our own eye and focusing on the speck in theirs. And there's this space that Jesus provides that meets the Pharisee, that meets the adulterous woman. See, both the adulterous woman and the Pharisee, when laid bare before Jesus, have the ability to allow his power and his compassion, his enchanting power to free us from the beast. Within, neither do I condemn you, he says. See, redemption is profoundly beautiful, my friends. Redemption, regardless of how broken your life has been or is, redemption is profoundly beautiful. He, Jesus, has the power to change your life. A friend shared with me recently that life after sin is better than life without sin. Think about that, that life after sin is better than life without sin, meaning redemption has this powerful force to bring healing and beauty in a way you wouldn't think it could and yet you see it and it's profound. That's why stories like The Beauty and the Beast are so beautiful for us. They're shadows of the gospel and what God offers to us. See, this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of Jesus' redemption. So I land with a practice in the life of Jesus that helps us lean in to our redemption. And friends, we need to lean in to our redemption. The reality is for us, the enemy loves to give subtle lies to cause us to fall into chains. Our flesh, the world, would love to numb ourselves from the voice of God. And that practice in the life of Jesus that helps lead us to lean into redemption is this little thing called confession. Sometimes we don't talk about it enough. Confession is self-awareness to admit where we are and taking the steps to turn our hearts to the compassion of Jesus. To recognize where we are and actually turn ourselves to the mercy and compassion of Jesus, knowing that he's filled with compassion and knowing that he has the power to bring healing. We have all felt our cheek against the dirt like that woman. And I am no exception, I might be a pastor here, but friends, all of us apart from Jesus are men and women of uh, unclean hands and unpure hearts. We all need the mercy of Jesus. In my own life, I can be a man of mockery between the man who I am and the man who I want to be. And when we feel, when I feel that space of shame, if I'm willing to listen to the quiet voice of the finger of Jesus upon the dirt, I look into the eyes of love and compassion and mercy of Jesus where he says, I don't condemn you. And allow that to motivate you into a life that follows me. Face down in the dirt, we can hear his promise. He's never going to quit on you. He will never quit on you. His love is relentless. And it pursues to no end to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went to the deepest depths to rescue you. See, the Beauty and the Beast and so many other Disney movies leave us in a space of imagination and fairy tale of could-be's and once. But the story of Jesus stamped in history reminds us that God is on the move and God is active in bringing redemption in the world and in you. So what if the parts of our stories that we'd like to edit, we'd like to erase, we'd like to hide away and find print and life ends up becoming the parts that go on, that we go on telling forever? And what if you find yourself here today and it's the invitation, it's not the invitation to clean up your life or get your life together, but it's the invitation that Jesus actually offers you that comes from a place of love and mercy Care, not get your life in order, but neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, this story reminds us that God's grace, friends, God's grace is more powerful than your sin. Friends, God's mercy is more powerful than your brokenness. And confession is a space to find healing. Confession is a space to find Redemption, it can feel humiliating, but when you come through its throes, you find a place of light and a place of hope that you can't find when, you're, uh, when you have its straitjacket on. See, friends, spiritual maturity is not less confession. I don't know what your vision of spiritual maturity is, but confession for the mature is a victory cry. It's saying, I, am, I might have felt this, and I might have given myself to this vice, but I am not that. I have been set free, and I'm being redeemed. And confession is this mature posture of saying, I'm not who I was. I'm being made new. And so we run to confession, we, we fear keeping up with appearances. We fear the temptation of keeping the mask on. Man, the posture of, of maturity and growth in the life of Jesus is in this practice of confession. Oh, now I'm set free, man. There's nothing that keep, can keep me. Man, I, man, I, this aspect of pride took me over. And man, Jesus convicted me, the Spirit convicted me, and I just want to confess that. I just want to put it before you as a friend. I want to put it before God and before you and just put it in the light. There's something victorious about the enemy having no foothold in your life. Friends, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't know the details of your life, but I know two things for you today. And there's mercy for you. He's not done. You're still breathing. He's at work. Redemption's real. He takes ashes and he makes them beautiful. And so for some of you, it's your marriage. You feel the pain in your marriage and you're pretending. What is that doing for anybody? Like, let's put it in the light. Let's seek help. Let's seek spaces where we can grow. Maybe, maybe it's just an area of, of secret sin in your life. And my friends, in the mercy of God, I invite you to confess. I invite you to own it and move forward. It doesn't look like you stand up here and do that. No, it looks like, man, before the sun goes down today, don't let the NFL games this afternoon silence what the Spirit might be doing in your heart now. And man, own it. Call a friend. Say, man, I got this thing in my life and I've been hiding it for days, weeks, months and I just want to put it in the light. There's something beautiful about confession. And so in one sense, I invite you to the practice that Jesus offers to us. And then the other gift for you, and it truly is a gift and it's not for me, I'm just the mouthpiece in this moment, is the mercy of Jesus. Friends, I don't know if we understand the compassion of God for us, I don't know if we know the depth of care, because I surely know that we're not going to respond to that woman the way that Jesus responded to that woman. And yet, God's kind, and it's His kindness that leads us to what repentance. It's His kindness that woos our heart, tender, loving care and pursuit, the way He loves and cherishes us. It's ridiculous. And yet he does. That's why it's called good news. So friends, it's good news for you that God cares for you and loves you and pursues you. Neither do I condemn you, it says. Paul takes that theme and in Romans 8 he says, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And so the same message that the woman got on that hot day is the same message we get on this cool fall morning, and that we are no longer, not because of anything else, but because the fact that God has rescued us in Christ, in his provision, on the cross, and resurrection by his blood, on our behalf, no longer condemned. And it's a beautiful gift to us and to the world. Redemption's real, and it's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for stories upon stories upon stories upon stories of your mercy. Time and time and time again, you remind us, yeah, we are beast-like. And yeah, you've broken the curse and you've set us free. And we long to experience it. And Lord, I pray today that we would know afresh the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ, that we would know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge, that we'd be filled to the fullness of God. But for those that need courage this morning to make a phone call to a friend, to reach out and just be honest with where we are, I pray that you'd help us to stop hiding and to put things in the light. And for others, where we just struggle to believe that you would love our beastliness. Help us to trust you in your grace and your mercy. Oh, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.